It's a bullshit question. Does that mean that you can't answer it? It's a bullshit question. It's impossible to answer. Impossible because you don't know the answer. Nobody could answer that question. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew Parsons from Prologue Projects. I'm filling in for Leon while he's away. On this premium episode of 5-4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are answering your questions. We'll get into how the justices write opinions, whether or not there's such a thing as a good prosecutor, and why it is that Clarence Thomas needs to borrow that private jet once again. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have left our civil rights stranded, like millionaires at a once-cool festival. Hmm. I'm Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hi, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hello. Sinking in some mud, huh? Yeah. Old news, I imagine, by the time folks listen to this, but we're just a couple days out from a bunch of absolute freaks getting stuck at Burning Man (laughs) and the continued sort of (laughs) fire festivalication of everything that these people do, like their submarines explode, Mm -hmm. festivals get bogged down and they have to hike. Of course, it, it was particularly harrowing for the legal profession as it was revealed <laughs> that Neil Katyal survived. Yeah. That's <laughs> that was what was harrowing. <laughs> Neil Katyal was at Burning Man dressed like I imagine he thinks a cool teenager at Burning Man would dress, right. wearing yes. like a propeller beanie yes. <laughs> and like a giant skull necklace. Yes. This is a man of 50 something. He's got to be in his 50s. Humiliating. Absolutely humiliating. Yes. Here's a little tip. I'm too old to be cool, but for our listeners who perhaps, like me, don't quite know what's cool and what's not, <laughs> if you're at an event and Neil Catchell is there, right. it's not cool. That's, that's all you need to know. You can turn around and walk out. That's right. So today, mailbag episode. Yeah. Mm. Taking your questions. That's right. We do this pretty rarely. Most podcasts do it a couple times a year because they're lazy. Yeah. We don't do it that often. <laughs> Mostly, I think, because we forget. I think we forget that this is an option for us. Yes. Right, that we could. <laughs> yes. So instead, yeah, we yeah. just prepare cases over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> every once in a while, one of us will be like, oh, yeah. or we could do a mailbag. Right. Right. And it's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Incredible. Absolutely. No reading needs to be done, especially. Because the quality of question continues to be below where we would want it to be. <laughs> yes, you guys. Y'all. You really need to form up here. If we get one more fuck, Mary kill question about the Supreme Court justices, <laughs> y'all, it's not funny, it's not creative, it's not interesting, and obviously the answer is <laughs> You know? Yeah. I will say in our listeners' defense, the law is a very technical thing, and so there are two paths. You can ask a really annoying technical legal question that no other listener wants to hear the answer to. Right. Or you can ask a very simple question that sort of butchers the legal elements, Mm -hmm. but is nonetheless a question that a normal human being might have. Right. So we understand that our listeners are in a tough spot, which is why we try to answer this stuff in good faith and uh, perhaps construct the question that we think you would ask if you were a legal nerd. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Some questions we get a lot and they're important. It's kind of a a procedural Supreme Court question, just kind of like 
hey, what are the logistics of this, right? Mm -hmm. One question we get a lot is kind of like, hey, I don't really understand the appellate process, right? Mm -hmm. We had one question that said, I know that an appeals decision by a circuit court judge can be appealed to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court only hears very few cases, right? Some are heard for oral argument. Some are decided on the shadow docket. Given that there must be a huge number of these cases, how does the Supreme Court sift through them all, right? Like, what's the Mm -hmm. process for how a case actually makes it to the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the listener who wrote in this question is correct. There are a lot of these. They're called uh, petitions for certiorari or cert petitions, where you are asking the Supreme Court to hear your case. And the clerks do the lion's share of the work here. And it's a big part of what clerks do. The Supreme Court only hears, you know, like 80 cases, but that's divvied up amongst nine justices. So they all really only have like single digit majority opinions. You know, not every justice writes an opinion for every case. There's usually only one majority opinion. A lot of times that's very short, five or six pages. There might not be any noted dissents. You know, there are a lot of unanimous cases or brief dissents or concurrences. So the actual writing lift for an individual justice per term is pretty small. And then that's in turn divided amongst five clerks. So the clerks, they write like an opinion or two, one dissent, maybe. That's it. In a year, they might write like three pieces of writing, one or two of which might be very short and simple. So yeah, most of what they do is handle these cert petitions where they read all the briefing from the parties, and then write a memo that circulated. There's something called the pool, where eight of the nine justices divide this work up. Sam Alito, for some reason, does not participate in the pool. I will say, I don't know why Alito doesn't participate in the pool. I believe that just means that he gives a lot more work to his clerks. Or he might be free riding. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that Italians are allowed into the pool. <laughs> there you go. Whatever the reason is, it's very off-putting. <laughs> One way or another. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> if you heard it, it would ruin your day. Yeah. I don't like exactly. it for whatever reason. <laughs> but the other eight justices have their clerks basically take one-eighth of the cert petitions and go through them and write a memo either suggesting the grant of certiorari, the taking up of the case, or the denial of certiorari, or some other disposition like a, you know, an overturn without opinion or, or, or whatever. That's sort of the bread and butter of what you do as a clerk at the Supreme Court. You know, they work for several months after the term is over, and just, that's literally all they do is they just go in all day and deal with cert petitions. To give everyone a sense of scale here, you know, the amount of federal court cases heard every year is like high five figures. Yes. And then the amount of appeals cases is, I think, low to mid four figures. Mm -hmm. And then that ends up with, you know, somewhere between like 60 and 90 Supreme Court cases. So the vast majority of circuit court appeals are not ending up before the Supreme Court. Some chunk of them 
are being appealed to the Supreme Court and rejected, and some chunk of them are not being appealed at all. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, this is a related question. We also get this question a lot, which makes sense. So once a case is accepted to be heard on the merits at oral argument with full briefing at the Supreme Court, that's one of these, say, 60 to 80 cases taken up each term. How does actually writing the opinions work, right? So we talk on the podcast about like Katanji Brown Jackson is in her dissent responding to whatever Thomas said in his concurrence, right? So people ask the question, how do the justices know what the opinions are going to say mm-hmm. beforehand, mm-hmm. right? Like, what is this process? How how do they decide which justices are writing which opinions and are they circulating drafts? What's going on here? Yeah. So this is a good question. I think it's good to start by discussing what they call like their conferences. Yes. So during the argument term, when they're hearing oral arguments, every Friday, the justices meet and discuss the cases they heard that week and essentially take a head count to figure out what is the winning position. And this is after discussion. So there will be some debate figuring out where everybody's head is at uh, and getting an idea for what like the scope of the ruling should be, whether everyone's on the same page or if it's going to be really divided, et cetera, et cetera. Once you know what the final position is and what the majority block looks like, the senior most justice in that block decides who writes an opinion. Seniority is by time spent on the court except for the chief justice, Chief Justice Roberts. He's always the most senior justice in his block, no matter what. So in the past, we've speculated that he may have joined an opinion that he didn't really agree with in order to assign the majority to like Gorsuch Mm -hmm. instead of the liberals, for example, Bostock. And I think it's worth noting, like this is the sort of the main power that the chief justice wields within the court Yes. Because he can sort of dictate the tone of any given opinion by assigning it to a certain justice. That's right. Which is why people talk about the Roberts Court, for example, and his ability to steer the court, right? It's not this purely symbolic thing where he's just one of nine. He has this power to sort of dictate the way that the court sounds, the optics and aesthetics that are affiliated with the court. Uh, He can't really sway the vote per se in this sense, but he can affect what types of opinions are written about what types of issues. Right. And can always give himself what he thinks will be the most hot and button issues in order to regulate the tone. Yeah. We talked in our episode on the affirmative action case, right, that it's clear, right, that Chief Justice John Roberts chose to write that majority opinion even though somebody like Clarence Thomas certainly would have loved Mm -hmm. to write the opinion, right? Right. Very much. But that would have been a very different opinion in tone and substance, right? Yeah. Roberts was like, absolutely not. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And so Thomas just wrote a concurrence that was 70 pages long. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. It was miserable. Mm -hmm. And so dissents work the same way. This is like whoever's the senior most justice in the dissenting block gets to decide like who will be a principal dissenter, although then other people can write. And then they retire to their chambers, et cetera, and give it out to the clerk they think is best suited to bang out the first draft. And it is then circulated. Once they have a draft they think is in decent enough shape, 
They will circulate it to the other justices for comments, both majority and dissenters. Dissents, the same thing, will circulate their copies. In theory, part of the process is to moderate tone and create a better opinion, Mm -hmm. but also you might be able to persuade someone. There's some indication that there have been times when somebody's switched votes. They've read the drafts and their opinion has changed. Right. There have been some very famous post-conference votes, which is probably the most famous in recent history, was John Roberts switching to uphold Obamacare which Scalia was notoriously said about. Right. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have the audio. <laughs> a loss for science. <laughs> a, gr- a great loss for science, yeah. Audio of an aneurysm. Just to hear an aneurysm <laughs> happen <laughs> in real time. <laughs> that was the first concrete step that Anthony and Scalia took toward death. That's, that's right. <laughs> that's the gist of it. I think that's the gist. Mm-hmm. Right. So a question that's also sort of about process, although to a lesser degree, someone asked, how do we repeal Citizens United? Mm -hmm. The bottom line here is that you cannot repeal Citizens United. Mm -hmm. I don't blame someone for asking this, mostly because I've seen politicians and activists promote the idea of repealing Citizens United using Mm -hmm. that terminology for some reason. Yeah. So I understand why someone might be confused. But repeal is a term that really specifically means to revoke a piece of legislation. a law. You can't repeal a court decision. You can overturn a court decision by having the court hear the same issue again and come out the other way. The court in Citizens United was ruling on a constitutional issue about the First Amendment, meaning they were interpreting the Constitution. And in, in our system, as it is understood today, they are the final arbiters on constitutional questions. Mm-hmm. So... You can either amend the Constitution or overturn the decision. And those are really your only options in a situation like Citizens United. So I've seen some politicians try to sort of like drive support and activism by latching onto that language. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of energy for it because people really fucking hate Citizens United. Bipartisan hatred. That's right. The bottom line is how do you get rid of Citizens United, right? Yeah. And I think... Unfortunately, in that case, the answer is it's very difficult, at least at this stage, and that we sort of are relying on the composition of the court changing. Mm -hmm. Much easier to change the composition of the court at this point than pass a constitutional amendment. Oh, certainly. Despite wide bipartisan support. Yeah. Or bipartisan disapproval, rather, of Citizens United. When we were on C-SPAN, we got an angry conservative caller. And the one thing he mentioned was like, Oh, I didn't like that case with the money and politics, right? right? Yeah. Like, like just out of nowhere, unsolicited, right. brought up that he did not like Citizens United. Right. And I'm sure if you asked him three more questions about it, he would have said something anti-Semitic. But the, <laughs> his heart is in the right place to some degree. Right. That's right. right. Yeah. When the Supreme Court or federal courts are ruling on the Constitution, then your options are constitutional amendment or changing the composition of the court. But the courts also often... Do stuff that's related to statutory interpretation, Mm -hmm. regulations, et cetera, et cetera, where Congress can just pass the law. Right. 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 If the court is interpreting a law a certain way and Congress disagrees, they can just pass a law clarifying. Right. Yeah. Tell them to fuck off. And they do that sometimes. Right. Right. But Citizens United was a constitutional decision and therefore it's not so simple. Right. Another sort of process oriented question someone asked. How is the chief justice chosen if Roberts were to retire tomorrow? 
Would a current justice be promoted to chief justice and Biden would fill the spot or would Biden just pick someone new to fill the spot? The answer to that is that the chief justice is nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, just like the other justices are. You know, they are all technically associate justices. So if Roberts retired or died, Biden could nominate anyone to fill the chief justice role. Historically, it's been fairly common for the president to nominate a current justice to fill the role. Right. Basically, like promoting them. Right. Like Rehnquist. And then, you know, they nominate someone else to fill the now vacant associate justice position. Mm -hmm. Sort of an interesting tidbit here is that the Constitution doesn't really say much about the chief justice as a role. It's just mentioned in passing, I think, only once saying that he presides over impeachments. Right. So there is actually sort of an open question constitutionally of whether like Biden could just demote John Roberts and say someone else is chief justice, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The reason that that doesn't happen is because the Constitution says that justices retain their office for life. So historically, we've treated the chief justice role as if it were an office, meaning that once John Roberts, for example, is in it, it can't be so easily stripped away. Mm -hmm. However, doesn't take that much creativity. A girl can dream. <laughs> right. To construct an analysis where that's not really the case and the chief justice is a role that the president can just sort of bounce between the justices as he deems fit. Yeah. Wouldn't count on it, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. I remain hopeful. And it is worth mentioning that Roberts is one of the rare chief justices who did not come from within the ranks. He was not an associate justice first. That's right. Although I think from here on out, Given how obviously political the court has become and how many politicians and presidents now realize that the court is a political body, I would be surprised if they did not take the opportunity to place someone as young as possible yes. into the chief justice role rather than promote someone who presumably is a little closer to the end of their career. Right. Right. So moving to a different category of questions, we got a bunch of questions that are like, I'm not a lawyer in this space or I'm not a lawyer at all, but I've had these ideas. I'm wondering about this issue, that kind of thing. We have an interesting question from somebody who says, what do y'all think about the idea of a residency for lawyers hmm. where in order to become fully licensed attorneys, law student graduates would have to serve two years as public defenders? This person goes on and says, you know, it might help alleviate the burden on public defenders and instill some sympathy for the accused in the next generation of lawyers. Mm -hmm. Maybe it could go part of the way to making a more fair and equitable justice system. I think this is an interesting idea. I think there is a lot of merit to the idea that law school itself might need to be restructured so that, you know, we've talked on the podcast before, there's no reason that law school is three years. It makes a lot more sense that the last year of law school, if it is going to be three years, that the last year of law school would be something like an apprenticeship where everybody is getting real legal work experience, right? Mm -hmm. Or a requirement like in med school, right? In med school residencies, you're assigned to a certain practice of medicine in a certain city and you go do that before you are a fully licensed doctor, right? I think there's some real merit to that. I have some hesitancy with saying that this should be a program specifically for public defense or even more broadly for public interest or like legal aid, right? Yeah. My thoughts about that are 
what we need to make a more fair and equitable justice system isn't throwing people against their will into representing the accused, right? I think people who are accused of crimes and who are too poor to hire an attorney still deserve the best legal representation that money could buy, that their lawyers are not people who are learning how to practice law, right? That public defense is looked at as a serious practice of law, where serious practitioners who want serious careers in, again, real litigation, practicing criminal law, are going into that work, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same for people who are doing, you know, tenants' rights and LGBTQ defense and reproductive justice, right? These are not experimental, temporary baby lawyer careers. We should be treating these careers as extremely real, professional career paths, right? And that's a systemic change. That's not just like we put in this temporary program that will fix something, you know? Yeah, I I also think this idea is interesting. And I think, uh, you know, the listener has their heart in the right place. And there's like a lot of good stuff to work with here. But if I were a criminal defendant, I wouldn't want my team to include an engineer who was going back to law school to do like trademark shit. Right, 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 exactly. Oh, (laughs) well, I got to do my three months at the public defender's office (laughs) now. Right, right. right. (laughs) It's not making my life better, right? And just to be pragmatic here, I do think the idea of like a sort of residency style system for lawyers is an interesting one. But when you just say they should be made to do public defense, like you're envisioning a world where the entire profession cares deeply about public defense. Right. And by the time we get there, the problem that you're trying to solve probably doesn't really exist anymore, right? That's right. The solution is an interesting one, but I don't don't think it's practical for that reason because by the time you get everyone who needs to agree to do this, to agree to do this, you might as well just have quadrupled the funding of public defense or whatever, right? right? right, Like that's probably an easier goal. Yeah. Yeah. The question says this could go part of the way to making a more fair and equitable justice system, which is true, but it skips past the hard part, which is making all of these stakeholders agree that the current justice system is unfair and inequitable. That's the hard part here. And I don't think you can just sort of gloss over that so it's an interesting idea, but I think it's downstream of the solutions that we really need. Yeah. I also just want to mention that, like, if you talk to a lot of doctors and surgeons and whatever, they'll tell you, like, residency is the fucking pits and yeah. in need of reform. Oh, yeah. One of the worst yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, parts yeah. of their education and ripe with abuse. And yeah. I look at the legal culture and just think, God. If you just gave all these people fucking residence that they could work to the bone, right? it would be bad. So like what legal education reform looks like has to be very thoughtful, right? right? Yeah. Can't be like, let's take the worst parts of medical education and <laughs> right, right. import it into law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. There was a question about like, if a prosecutor had sole discretion to pursue their cases and all they did was pursue cases against people who like did actual harm by like leftist standards, right? Wage theft, housing discrimination, et cetera. Would that prosecutor not be morally good? What if we could create the one true good prosecutor? <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know if that's worth answering. 
Rhea and I were talking once and I was saying that like my buddy who's a prosecutor does like public corruption and child sex crimes in like a pretty progressive institution where they do a lot of diversion programs for sex workers and all this stuff. And she's like, yeah, it's great that your friend found a way to cage people for a living and still feel good about it. (laughs) You can't argue with a fucking communist. Right. You know, (laughs) I think it's pretty much the answer to this question, though, which is like, at the end of the day, you are putting people in cages, right? That's your job. Like, I get that this question is about like, prosecutors as they are today, right? Like you would be still right. caging somebody, you would yeah, still be yeah. jailing somebody. But to me, when I'm talking about like reimagining prosecution in general, I'm talking about, yes, like what if our state resources were devoted to combating wage theft, housing discrimination, antitrust stuff, right? right? Not the unhoused person who stole a sandwich from Walmart, you know? Right, right, Mm -hmm. right. So it's like, yeah, I do think that should be the role of the prosecutor. But like the end game is not that like all those people just fill the prisons, you know? Yeah. Right. I don't know if the question is like, can you envision in our current system a good prosecutor? Then it's like, no. Then the answer is like, probably no. And if yes, it's the tiniest sliver of what actual prosecutors do. Right. Yeah. Like in the current system where the end game is that prosecutor prosecutes a crime and the point is to surveil and cage somebody, then no, that doesn't get me to justice, right? But Mm -hmm. if we're reimagining the role of prosecutor in terms of what is the role of justice attained at the end of the process, then this is exactly what I'm talking about, what prosecutors in that hypothetical system would be focused on, right? Right. It's not a real challenge to any arguments made against prosecutors to say, well, you could theoretically envision one that is good or that doesn't do as much harm. That's true, but it's a sidebar to conversations about what to do about the institutions. Maybe the last thing we can say about this, and this is a conversation that is relevant to Trump facing criminal charges, right? Like, I think if you haven't represented an 18-year-old on RICO charges, or if you haven't been the 18-year-old charged with RICO charges, it's much easier for you to say, like, fuck yeah, hit him with RICO, lock him up, right? It's true. It is very easy for me to say that. <laughs> I think people get too bogged down in individual cases, both real and hypothetical, when we're talking yes. about institutional reform. Right. And that applies to this hypothetical about the one true prosecutor, and it applies to discussions of Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. Speaking about Trump, we got some questions about legal issues in the news right now. So people are wondering if the issue of Trump's eligibility to run for president makes it up to the Supreme Court, what do we anticipate the ruling to be? So uh, I think recently, just in the last uh, maybe month or two, some conservative legal scholars, law professors, have published some writing that says that under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Trump, for his actions on January 6th and in attempting to overthrow an election, that he is actually barred from running for president. Right. Or any office. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that made me think of like Representative Trump and <laughs> Congressman Trump. Dog catching yeah. Trump. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, maybe even some conservatives agreeing with this argument. But what does that mean for Clarence Thomas? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You know, there are sort of two questions here. One is like, 
is there a real tangible argument here that Trump is disqualified from office? And I think the answer to that is absolute. Yeah, 100%. So to be clear, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, says that anyone who took an oath to support the United States and support the Constitution, who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, or gave aid and comfort to the enemies thereof, would not be eligible for office, for public office. Mm -hmm. So the real question, I guess, is did January 6th and the lead up to January 6th count as insurrection or rebellion? We don't need to get into that, but I think there are basically two schools of thought. One is, what the fuck else was it? Right. There was a Confederate flag in the Capitol. (laughs) Like, what are we talking about here? Right. (laughs) Yeah. The 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. This provision was put in to deal with the Civil War. Right. Insurrectionists, the people who broke away from the government and tried to overthrow American government, saying they could never hold office again. Like, that's the point. Yeah. And now we have someone who tried to depose the incoming president. If that's not an insurrection or rebellion, then I feel like we're getting a little bit technical about the definitions. (laughs) Right, right. Um, We're going a little (laughs) ticky-tack here. A lot of the conservative arguments that this doesn't apply are just sort of like, well, this was really meant to specifically apply to the Confederacy. Right. Right. Now, this is funny, mostly for legal nerds, because they are using this like kind of abstract intent of the words sort of argument. Yeah. Clearly, if the drafters of the 14th Amendment wanted this to apply to one specific rebellion, right? they could have made that very clear, very easy. That's right. Yes. Also, though, why would they want it to just apply? Like, future rebellions are exempt. Exactly. What would be the purpose of that? It doesn't make <laughs> right. any sense. I saw some funny comments on Twitter of people being like, this rarely used provision like it's like right. so ridiculous to bring it up. Yeah, it rarely used because how often do people try to oppose the government? Huh? Right. <laughs> like what are we? Yeah, Not it, super often. Right. Yeah. That's the thing about January 6th is that it was very weird. Yes. Right. Ahistorical exactly. to whip up a mob and sick them on Congress. <laughs> Your Honor, I have committed one of the rarest crimes. <laughs> <laughs> Reed, try that out next time uh, you've got it. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my God. And so, you know, there is a sort of secondary question here of, is this feasible to enforce? Mm. Is it good to enforce? There are liberals who are skeptical of using this. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the fuck they think the benefits of, like, holding our fire here are. I yeah. personally, and I, I don't know what you guys think of it. We haven't even really discussed this, but... My thought is that seeing this before the Supreme Court would bring joy unto me. Right. One way or another. Now, do I think the Supreme Court is going to side against Trump? No, they don't have balls like that. No. Putting aside the politics, I think that they do their best to, like, not interfere with Mm -hmm. something so dramatic. But as someone who is interested in the undermining of the legitimacy of the institution of the Supreme Court, do I think they escape that? with their sort of institutional integrity intact. No, I think it does damage. No, it's a circus. Yeah. And uh, for that reason, I would like to see the Alito concurrence. Right, right. That's right. Uh-huh. In Trump v. Biden. <laughs> yeah. It's a majority opinion written by John Roberts 
saying this is non-justiciable yep. and it's for Congress. Yeah. That under the 14th Amendment, Congress has the power to pass a law saying January 6th was an insurrection for the purposes of the 14th Amendment. Right. It won't be a substantive opinion. It'll be about whether the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is self-executing, as they say. Yeah. Right. That's the technical off-ramp for the Supreme Court. Right. That's right. And they'll kick it over to Congress. And we will give you a heater of an episode, folks. It is going to be good. <laughs> Mitch McConnell will have several aneurysms or mini strokes. What remains of Mitch McConnell's brain? <laughs> While trying to answer questions about this, like his brain will just leak out his ears, like just fully explode in his head. It'll be great. Oh, shit. On the topic of Trump, somebody asked, I'm wondering if such a criminal case is so politically charged that it may be impossible to get a jury that would unanimously agree to convict, resulting in jury nullification. Mm. And so this question uses the term jury nullification, which is actually something different. They're really talking about like a hung jury or a mistrial. We'll get to jury nullification in a minute. In any event, when you look at like American elections, you look at polling now and Trump still gets like 43% of the vote and you're like man, we can never convict him of anything because there's just this large chunk of the country that's deranged that thinks Democrats eat babies for their adrenaline glands or something mm -hmm. and whatever. And that's all true. It's true that, yeah, we Not do that. that Democrats eat babies. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you should take a look at the demographics and vote results in the localities where Trump is being tried, mm -hmm. D.C., Atlanta, New York. I mean, D.C., I think, was like 93% Biden, 4% Trump. Yeah. Manhattan was huge numbers. Will someone in the jur larger jury pool be a Trump supporter? Probably. Yeah. Will they necessarily make it on the jury? I doubt it. Yeah. Um, but it's always a possibility. Juries are hard to predict. It's possible. It might be the case that one of these juries ends up with like some yeah. dead ender. I extremely doubt all three. If all three do, the prosecutors have majorly fucked yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Like they have not done a good job in voir dire because statistically it just shouldn't happen. Right. You should be able to figure out using a series of leading questions if someone is a Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. It's like if a 78-year-old man used rub-on tan. Is that normal to you? <laughs> yeah. Is that okay? There's a lot of things to be concerned about right now. This isn't one. This isn't one I'm worried about at all. There will be a fight every step of the way at every step of the process. Mm -hmm. yep. So the prosecutors are going to fight about who gets on the jury. Trump's defense team is going to fight about who got on the jury, right? It will be stalled and fought about at every step. They're trying to get out of all these jurisdictions. They're trying to get out of D.C. and New York. Yep. Because all of the venues look unfavorable right now to Trump, like a jury pool in those jurisdictions, right. Trump's defense team will argue and is arguing would not be fair to Trump, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the person who asked the question used the term jury nullification, and we get a lot of questions all the time about jury nullification. Mm -hmm. It keeps coming up, and I think people are interested in it. And there are a lot of misconceptions about what jury nullification means. Can it be used as a tool for justice? Can people get in trouble for nullifying if they serve on a jury, et cetera, et cetera? So just kind of like high level, jury nullification happens when a jury finds someone not guilty even when there is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant broke the law. 
right? So, you know, there's this way to think about it. A jury can only find a person guilty if it's proven beyond a reasonable doubt that they broke the law, right? But even if it is proven beyond a reasonable doubt that a defendant broke the law, that does not mean that a jury must find the person guilty, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you are on a jury, in the jury room deliberating, you do not have to have any stated specific reason for finding somebody not guilty, right? Mm -hmm. That's why jury nullification is sort of in our system allowed because you can find a criminal defendant not guilty for any reason, including that you just don't agree with the very fact of this person being charged with this crime. Right. right. Let's say it's a incredibly disproportionate sentence for a very minor crime like, you know, drug possession. Right. Or you don't believe that possession of marijuana should be a crime. Right. Yeah. Or you don't believe that a politically charged prosecution of a former president should be allowed to continue. <laughs> That's right. But that brings up a good point, though, which is that jury nullification, in my mind, people who serve on juries should be empowered to nullify at all times because I think all prosecutions in our criminal system are unjust. But that doesn't mean that jury nullification has historically or always is used for just purposes, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, all white, all male juries mm -hmm. back in the day that would let off a white male defendant who had very obviously committed a crime against, say, a black victim, right? Mm -hmm. Those juries were nullifying. That is jury nullification, you know? Famously, that happened with Emmett Till, right? Right. Yeah. And so that's jury nullification. It is a tool. People who get called to jury duty should not be publicizing loudly that they're about to jury nullify yeah. because you can be struck from serving on a jury if you are saying up front that you will not listen to the evidence and give both sides, you know, sort of your fair analysis. And so I hear kind of like the joke a lot, like from leftists or progressives, like, oh, I got called to jury duty. I'm going to wear my like fuck the police shirt. Yeah. If the prosecutor asks me any question, I'm going to say I'm an abolitionist. I don't believe in cops. It's like, yeah, you can do that. But that means you're not going to serve on the jury. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you're not going to have any power in determining the fate of this person's life. Right. Who is currently accused. Yeah. Yeah. Although also it will be the easiest way to get off a jury. There's no way to get off. Right. Jury. Exactly. Like if you're not wanting to serve on the jury. Great. If that's how you might want to make your point. Great. But if you're wanting to serve on the jury and nullify, right, because you don't agree with the mm -hmm. fact of a prosecution, that's not the way to do it. Mm -hmm. What Ree's saying is, do you want to be a poser? Or do you want to really fucking be about that life? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. We keep getting asked questions about jury nullification, like people are going to fucking do something. Uh, never heard any success stories. We did hear a success story. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. A Twitch streamer was a fan of ours. Yeah. She got called into jury duty like a week after listening to an episode where I encouraged people to nullify and she did. And it was a hung jury. Yeah. Oh, and we should say that often if you are nullifying on a jury because a verdict either way has to be unanimous, right. unanimous for guilt or unanimous not guilty. Right. So if you are nullifying and not everybody agrees with you to go not guilty. Basically, you're a holdout juror until the end. Yeah. You're saying, I'm not changing my mind, even if everybody else wants to vote guilty. And that result is a hung jury, right? right. That means that often the prosecutor can recharge, bring that person to trial again. Uh, it starts from the beginning. And so, yeah, you're making these choices based on like 
Am I going to be a yeah. stick in the wheel of this process? Mm -hmm. right. Am I a massive speed bump in this process? Do I waste the state's resources? They have to go and do this again. Or do I just say, fuck the police and get off the jury? Right. Yeah. Or if you feel like you have a compelling case and you can make the argument, you can try to persuade the jurors. Oh, yeah. You should absolutely but, try to do that. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you have to be prepared for the possibility that you are the lone holdout. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. And that's okay. That's still doing good. Right. So some questions to wrap. A lot of people ask for updates on the Clarence Thomas ethics issues. The only real update is that Thomas and Alito filed their disclosures for 2022 belatedly. Yes. A couple of interesting things. Thomas <laughs> said that he used Harlan Crow's private jet a couple times for security reasons after Dobbs. Mm -hmm. Just good, funny shit. To be clear, <laughs> when you're on the Supreme Court, you can draw upon federal resources to enhance your security. That's right. After the Dobbs leak, it was discovered that the court had requested assistance from U.S. Marshals, from federal marshals, and received vastly enhanced security. And last I checked, are still receiving vastly enhanced security. So mm -hmm. the idea that he's like, sorry, I for security reasons, I have to go on the special plane. Yeah. Right. Maybe not the mm -hmm. most compelling argument. He also said <laughs> that he had to use it once due to an ice storm. Mm. The implication being that the roads got so slippery <laughs> that he had to call Uncle Harlan. For the PJ. <laughs> and be like, Harlan, it's too slippery out. I'm gonna need the plane. And Harlan was like, you got it, Clarence. You will never have to drive on a slippery road <laughs> right. or wait until the next morning yeah. on my watch and sent him the plane. Yeah, uh, incredible. Right. Incredible stuff. Just as corrupt as the last time we checked in, it only just gets funnier <laughs> as we go on. We did a Zoom for Arch Enemies recently where someone asked if we ever got imposter syndrome. And I didn't get a chance to answer it on the Zoom, but I wanted to answer it here and just say, for me, at least, yes. My first job out of college, I was a teacher and a coach, imposter syndrome teaching, imposter syndrome coaching. Second job, worked at a company that sold planes and helicopters, imposter syndrome there. Third job, Obama campaign, definitely imposter syndrome there. Bussing tables. Always right there. Imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> felt it working at a bar, working at a law firm. I felt it all the time. So yeah. it's a pretty universal thing. Yeah. It's good that there's terminology around it. But at the same time, I feel like if you're like a thoughtful person who wants to be good at stuff you do, like you will have insecurities about it. Right. And you want to be good at something. You'll be thinking about it. And that sort of necessarily leads to insecurities. Yeah. I will also say that I've had imposter syndrome at nearly every job I've ever had. <laughs> Ironically, I feel like I have less now as a podcaster, even though we're talking about these sort of like really big picture ideas with tons of mm -hmm. import and lots of expertise floating around us in the field, mostly because the podcast has sort of steadily revealed to me how many people in this space yes. are complete yes. frauds. Yes. yes. So I feel like early on, I was like, yes. man, are we like a little over our heads yeah. here? And then over time, I was like, actually, no, yeah. we are normal, uh, reasonably intelligent people trying to figure stuff out and say our thoughts. However, there are frauds all around us. Absolutely. Yeah. In academia, right. uh, like the lawyers, the justices. 
once you realize how completely fraudulent the sort of like ostensible intelligence and intellectualism of the people who claim to be at the sort of top of society, right, within these sort right. of higher mm-hmm. tiers of society, it becomes a lot easier to be comfortable <laughs> in your own skin. Peter, I think that's a really good point about like what you're actually defining imposter syndrome as, right? Because in terms of like, I shouldn't be here or I don't deserve it. No, I don't experience that. Like, do I experience insecurity? Absolutely. Am I insecure sometimes that I'm not good enough for something or strong enough or smart enough for a task? Absolutely. But in terms of like my existence and my role in a space at an institution, at a law school, at a job, those kinds of things, like the insecurities for me have been like, well, fuck, like I don't have a model Mm -hmm. for how it's done by somebody like me, but I know that I should fucking be here because I Mm want to be here. Right. It's more about like taking it like so seriously, you know, but like, yeah, insecurity, like, am I good? Like, am I actually good enough? Am I actually smart enough? Like, yeah, for sure. I will never forget recording episode five of this podcast. And it took a really long time and we struggled to get through it. I confused myself and got really confused about what I wanted to say. At the time, I was recording at a recording studio in Austin and Peter and Michael, we were on Zoom together. Peter and Michael were at a recording studio in New York. And I walked out of the recording studio and I called Peter and I cried and I said, I just don't think I'm good enough to do it. Like, I just maybe I'm just not good for a podcast. Right. And so for sure it happens. But absolutely fuck that. I'm very good for a podcast. (laughs) That's right. We are very good at this. (laughs) That was the drunkest I've been. This is not a joke. In the last maybe (laughs) six years. Yeah, Peter was also (laughs) laying down in the back of a cab during this phone call. (laughs) Fully laying down in the back of a cab. He was like, no, Ree, you're so good. (laughs) I wanted you on this podcast for a reason. (laughs) Like three quarters of a bottle of tequila deep. <laughs> no, no. And I was like, okay, yeah. okay, I believe you. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. All right. One final question here. Someone said, I am a dyed in the wool conservative, but I still love your podcast. Yes. Most of the time, I disagree with your analysis, oh, okay. but I almost always understand the law and cases better after I've listened to you. You're welcome. My question is why don't you ever invite guests on who disagree with you? If your arguments are strong, there is no downside. Plus, it would be nice to hear how you react to others of goodwill who don't see things how you do. Just a thought. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, the question I would have for this listener is why the fuck would we ever do that? (laughs) The downside is I have to hear a conservative talking on my fucking podcast. The downside is the podcast would suck ass, first of all. Okay? (laughs) We're a podcast about critiquing Supreme Court decisions. If you want to hear the other side, just read the fucking opinions. That's the other side. That is the purported smartest people in America trying to do the other side. So go ahead and read it. Clarence Thomas has the platform. Fox News has the platform. We're doing our own thing over here. Fucking read the Vala conspiracy or whatever you feel (laughs) like doing. Plenty of people have written about like the conservative fetishization of like debate. Yes. The implication here is that by debating with some conservatives, we'd all somehow arrive closer to the truth. Right. Right. Despite the fact that there's like endless research showing that that's just not true, not how debate works. And my strong hunch is that this dude is not 
writing into National Review or whatever pervert publications he reads, right. requesting that they give space to opposing right. views, right? It's just something you want left-leaning media to do so that you can hear your fucking freak friends in their <laughs> ill-fitting suits describe their arguments to our faces directly. Exactly. Turning our podcast where we speak openly from a left perspective about the law into some bullshit New York Times debate right. nonsense that no one wants to right. hear and would end our careers as podcasters. <laughs> right. So my strong suggestion to this listener is for you to shut the fuck up and suck my dick. <laughs> Buzzsaw, you little prep school fuck. We're not your friends. We don't want your money. Cancel your subscription. <laughs> All right, next week, term preview. The new term starting in October, and uh, we're going to have our buddy Chris Geidner, who publishes the Law Dork newsletter. Yeah. Which I think is like steadily become not just popular, but it's huge. One of the most useful pieces of legal media out there. Essential. Yeah. We're going to have him on to talk about what we're worried about next term. What horrors await. Mm hmm. Thanks for subscribing. You are our dearest friends. Don't let anyone tell you that it's parasocial. This is real. <laughs> what you're feeling is real. After you just cut somebody on. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I said to that conservative was something I would say to a real friend who openly expressed that opinion to me. <laughs> Love y'all. Thanks for your questions. Yeah, thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. And our researcher is Jonathan DeBruin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. And our theme song is by Spatial Relations. I will tell you, uh, there is nothing as a podcaster better than that moment when you sit down to prepare for the next episode and then you realize it's a mailbag episode. Yep. Yes. Very good. You don't need to prepare. You can just get drunk or whatever. Glorious yeah. Tuesday morning when I texted you guys being like, hey, what case are we doing this week? <laughs> I want to get started. And were you being like, it's a mailbag app. Good news, <laughs> Michael. Like, oh, yeah. Shit. Yeah. I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> Fuck this. I'm chilling. <laughs> <laughs>